Sam Sun is a researcher at Paradigm and renowned white hat hacker. Sam, welcome to the Ethereum Cat Herders podcast. Great to be here. Uh, um, so you're definitely uh, well-renowned in the space as a smart contract researcher, or I guess security, security. I don't even know exactly what to say. Like person who saves smart contracts from demise might be better. Um, how did you get into that line of work? Like, how did you find yourself in smart contract security? Well, it all started, uh, <laughs> so my IRO friends knew that I was a big fan of security. I was very into it. Um, they were pestering me to look into this Ethereum thing for, I want to say months to maybe years. And for the longest time, I put it off until uh, one day I decided to just bite the bullet and take a look. I read through all the blog posts about all the hacks at the time, you know, the, the big multi-sig, the parody hacks. Um, and then after that, I started, you know, trying some of that stuff for myself. This is around the time when those honeypots were very popular, the ones where it looked like there was a branch bug and, um, you know, you would try to exploit it and in fact, it would just take all your money. And so it was really like a ripe environment for learning in a hands-on manner. You could just go on Etherscan, find a bunch of contracts, uh, most of them honeypots. You could like experiment on your own. Um, you go on Reddit, Reddit is very active. Uh, so go on r slash ethdev, um, find all these posts about people writing these little toy contracts, uh, look at those. It was just such a new ecosystem. Um, security wasn't really a big consideration, I think. And so it was something that I th found myself uh, just drawn into the ability to sort of contribute in a big way. Um, so you, you mentioned that you were already into security beforehand. So does that mean that you were also active in, I guess, what we call tr traditional security? Yeah, that's right. So if you look at my GitHub, you'll find that I, uh, before doing Ethereum things, I was working mainly in reverse engineering. And so I have this project that I was working on uh, that basically, uh, it, it's, it's for uh, reverse engineering Java applications. And so that was... A large part of my life before doing Ethereum, I spent a little bit of time doing, you know, like bounties on Hacker One. So I I did have some experience in that regard uh, that carried over into Ethereum. Um, yeah, basically, I, I <laughs> before Ethereum, I was I was still doing plenty of security related things. Interesting. These days, I'd I'd say probably all of your efforts in the Ethereum space, or I like once you went down the blockchain hole, that was it, or you're also still active in like the kind of traditional security world. Yeah, no, I've I've gone all in on Ethereum and blockchain. Um, I haven't really that that project I talked about is dead now. It it hasn't been touched in years. Uh, my hacker one profile is dead. Um, basically, yeah, all my time is spent on the Ethereum ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, and so inside the Ethereum ecosystem itself, how do you decide like what you're going to look at in terms of contracts? Like, I guess what attracts you to certain projects or how do you find yourself, I guess, in the situations, like in, in that situation where you're looking at someone's contract and you see something like what usually draws you to those contracts specifically? So that's a good question. Um, you know, if you asked me this a couple of months ago or maybe a little a close to a year ago, my answer would have been something around the lines of, I just look at contracts that have the largest balance of either. And this was a pretty good heuristic at the time because, you know, the, the sort of token boom that we're seeing now had didn't really happen yet. And so the balance of Ether was a good proxy for how valuable a contract is. Nowadays, that's not as true. And so 
the question of like what how do I find new targets? Um honestly, <laughs> probably just like scrolling Immunify at this point. Uh they've sort of really picked up steam and there's you know plenty of projects on board there that you know have haven't really been looked at yet. Uh that seems like as good a method as any. Mm -hmm. Um maybe just to dig into that for a second. You were saying before that kind of highest value you could look at. I the highest value from a security perspective kind of correlated with ether value, but that that's diverged. So when you talk about kind of like a high value prospect, what constitutes kind of like a high value look for you? I mean, I I mainly focus on the money, right? I think that's what that's a really easy uh mm. value prop to understand is like if you rescue a contract that has a lot of funds at risk, that's like very obvious what you've contributed. Mm. Um, now, obviously, everyone understands Ether. It's also very easy to query the balance of Ether for a contract, less so, you know, like the the third nested wrapped token for some like yield farm, right? Uh, which is why it's it's sort of hard, I think, to easily come without without referring to any like outside service, just with like the Web3 JSON RPC itself, it's hard to like query for a list of high value targets uh, that you, you know, that, that are comprised of tokens. Uh, so when you said before that the like things have diverged over the last few months, so you're still looking at value, but the values shifted kind of from Ether into ERC20 tokens or am I misunderstanding? Right, exactly. And because it's so hard to, to build up that infrastructure to query high value targets comprised of tokens, it's, you know, I would probably just start, uh -huh. you know, like looking through Immunifier or something like that. Mm. Um, so that that also does mean, I guess, that in terms of uh, contracts that may have a large level of impact, but might not carry as much value with them. I'm debating, like, I'm, I'm trying to think right now if there are really contracts that are like that right now. I don't know the ecosystem well enough to say one way or another, but do you find yourself also, like, I guess if there would be maybe a DAO structure that uh, would be maybe interesting, but not necessarily high value. Do you find yourself in that project, in that kind of area of project also? Like I'm thinking the NFT contracts probably do hold their own value most of the time, but I, I might be mistaken about yeah. that. So I, mm -hmm. I think that's a good point. Um, obviously it, it's, it depends on how you define value. Um, get, like for the NFT example, uh, if you find a bug that allows you to like steal NFTs from other users, sure, you're not dealing with, you know, like ether or tokens or something directly, uh, you know, monetary like that, but it's still obvious that there's, there's value to that, right? It's not great if you can just steal someone's NFTs. Um, as for an example of something that like maybe has no immediate obvious value, like maybe, maybe like say for example, the, the open Zeppelin time lock. But even then that, you know, is being used by all these large projects. And so compound. Yeah. Yeah. So I think basically anything, I keep going back to this, but like if it has value, everything right? does. Yeah. <laughs> everything really used. does. Yeah. Okay. How do you go? I, I, I've heard you mentioned this before, but I think also just specifically for listeners who may have, may have not heard it from you. Um, when you have contracts that you're looking at, what, what's your setup? How do you go about looking at them? Yeah, so my setup, uh, and it's actually it's good it's good that you ask this because it you know it changes every once oh. in a while and then so you know I'll, I'll give different answers to different people and then it, it starts evolving. So nowadays, 
my setup, I would say, is uh, get it into VS Code. Um, I originally used to keep it on GitHub, just like GitHub in its own browser. Um, mm. I'm finding that after trying it once or twice, uh, I really do like uh, the navigation in an IDE. It, it, I mean, you know, in hindsight, it's an IDE. I was built for that, right? I think maybe I was just lazy. I was like, you know what? I can pop these open in a new tab. That's fine. Uh, but now I do try to make a conscious effort to get into VS Code or something like that. Um, I think after I that, that you, you know, just stand. Actually, I remember you saying Remix in the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's that's actually changed too. So in the past, I you know to develop these proof of concepts, I would. I mean, I started off in Remix, right? As most of us did, and so it was just easy to stay there. Um, I ended up writing my own Remix plugin to sort of do like mainnet forking. And so I, it just sort of like locked me into this Remix ecosystem. Mm -hmm. uh, that's sort of changed now. Georgios has been uh, graciously volunteering his time to develop Foundry. And after I, I like offhandedly mentioned like, oh man, it'd be great if Foundry could like run uh, one-off files instead of making a whole project to run a file. He, someone, maybe him, maybe someone else like, pushed out in a couple of days. And so now now my workflow is VS Code plus Foundry to run these proof of concepts. Mm -hmm. So how does that help you so much, like being able to kind of run off of a file instead of run the whole project? I'm just lazy. I don't want to make a whole project and have all that, you know, uh, all, all, you know, like the, the libs folder, the tests, you know, all this uh, uh, structure okay. meant for large projects. I just want to make a file and just run it. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So usually you get things into VS Code and then it's kind of manual review from there. Like, are there automated tools that you usually run or? No, I still, I mean, maybe this changes too. Like maybe someone asks me what's my workflow in like three months and I'm like, yeah, I use all these tools. Um, right now though, I still shy away from them mainly because I think tooling is great for developers. They help developers catch bugs that, you know, they might otherwise miss. But from a research perspective, like a vulnerability bug hunting perspective, uh, you know, the tool is never going to get as good as a human, at least for now. And so what, what that means is in the best case, I get, you know, like lulled into a false sense of security. I see like the green check mark. It's like, oh, this file is secure. I'm like, okay, it's good. And it turns out it's not. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to have to end up reviewing the file manually anyways. So, you know, I might as well just just like start with that if i happen to miss like some trivial bug that the tool would have found and i didn't find it i mean maybe that's my punishment for missing such an obvious bug mm -hmm. interesting um when you're looking at a contract like is there a particular method that you usually use to go through the contract do you go top bottom is there a way that you break it up into pieces well actually i heard inside up no um i think <laughs> uh basically there's like a few different strategies I use. Uh, the the one I like the most is like analyzing. <laughs> God, I, I got to stop saying this word. Analyzing where the value comes from. Yeah, value. Uh, but it, it, it I, I swear, I swear, trust me on this. It's actually really good. Um, so <laughs> if you if you imagine like what's the worst thing that could happen to a contract? I mean, this is like we're building up from first principles, right? Mm -hmm. So like if you imagine what's the worst thing that could happen to a contract that holds, you know, some asset, right? That's like the mm. asset goes out, right? And so like by definition, uh, any bug that 
affects this contract and does that worst case scenario has to trigger the code that causes a value to flow out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you could you, you could have like a contract with three thousand lines of all these dependencies and libraries and opens up and bloat, and you could ignore all of that and just like go to the three places that do like a message sender dot transfer, right? And you start mm-hmm. from there and you work you work your your way backwards, and you know. Oftentimes, you can very easily eliminate a lot of them. Like it's going to be like, you know, withdraw tokens if user has enough balance, transfer ether out, and you're like, okay, that's obviously secure, and then you just move on. And then, you know, in that way, you you can really like figure out quickly if there's like a nice quick win there. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's not always that easy, and usually there isn't. And then after that, you you start doing like a more fine combed approach. You know, you methodologically mm-hmm. uh, search every so function you, make sure everything's secure but yeah so you even start looking for like the message that values or maybe payable functions even before you start kind of like piecing together exactly like what the flow of functions through the contract is yeah like, i like, i usually don't give like do like pre-reads or whatever um mm-hmm. as an example like if i if i open up a new project and there's like eight folders that i see i won't like scan through all the folders and look at all the files and like figure out what the project looks like from a high level view i'll like mm-hmm. you know i'll either go like one by one just like start pc together as i go or i'll just like search if it's on ether scan i'll just search from like dot transfer and start from there mm-hmm. interesting uh, so what happens if you do find something i don't know if there's a general answer for this but you're looking through contracts you find a bug what's usually the process from there I mean, the first process, first step is to celebrate. Um, after that, <laughs> after that, you know, you, you try to find the find the right person to contact, uh, which in itself is can be quite an ordeal, especially if the team is anonymous. Um, nowadays, you know, that's sort of simpler. Again, Immunify is sort of like taken. They they sort of like simplified simplified a lot of this process. Um, on the off chance that you're dealing with something that's not on their platform, you know, you, you go on their Twitter, you search for blog posts, you find their Discord, uh, you know, whatever you have to do to get in touch with them. And then you just let them know and, uh, you know, send them a good proof of concept, make sure they understand the severity, and then just be there to assist. Just because it's come up a couple of times, actually, maybe maybe we should dig into Immunify a bit. Um, so we, um, would you mind maybe saying like what Immunify is and how they've helped both the process in terms of like the platforms that are there in terms of looking for vulnerabilities, like you mentioned in the beginning, and also for team contact? Yeah, I mean, so Immunify is like, I think the quickest way to describe it would be like HackerOne, but for Web3. Uh, the longer way to describe it is like Immunify is like the managed bug bounty platform. So they they help uh, bring together uh, projects who want to post bug bounties and hackers who want to hack on bug bounties, um, and so they'll manage all the communications. They'll, they, you know, you sign up with them. They have a list of projects that they've onboarded. You they they show you all the contracts in scope. They show you the bounty payouts. You find a bug. You open a report. You type out all the stuff. Um, everything's managed by them. So if you think the project is trying to rip you off, you can just escalate to their team. They'll come in and mediate for you. Uh, so it, it really takes all the uncertainty out of what used to be, you know, like find the project admin on Telegram, tell them the bug, hopefully hopefully you don't get ripped off. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, you know, they, they've really streamlined it. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Uh, how, 
I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's a set answer to this also, but um, once there is a vulnerability in a contract, how often is it something that's able to be mitigated? How many times is it like, okay, got to white hack everything out of there? Uh, white hat hack everything out of there? Or how often is it even maybe like kind of a third category, which I think we kind of saw with Compound um, over this past year of just kind of have to stay quiet and hope nothing bad happens? I think in my experience, very rarely do you need to white hat rescue. Um, usually there's some way to pause it or, you know, otherwise render it, uh, you know, safe. Mm -hmm. um, but I also, I sort of, I think I sort of self-select out of projects that might need that sort of response because, um, you know, a lot of the big projects don't go full decentralization, so they always maintain some level of control over the protocol, mm -hmm. and so it's easier for them to respond to the these situations. Uh, it's actually interesting now that you mention it. I feel like more recently, I've seen more of these like white hat rescues. I don't know if there is a trend there. It feels like empirically it, the, the, that number's gone up. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, hmm. How do you think that MEV has affected the space, if at all? I mean, uh, MEV is, like, doesn't create a new vector of vulnerability in contracts, but in terms of exploiters being able to leverage things like MEV in order to exploit a contract when, when something, like when an exploit has been discovered, do you feel like that's changed the scene at all? Do you mean like exploiters using like a private mempool to? Yeah, that, that would have been a better exploits? way to ask it. Uh, services like Flashbots that enable them to submit a transaction without it hitting public mempool first. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely thrown a wrench in the works to people who want to develop sort of like these uh, like reactive uh, security solutions where mm -hmm. The original premise was like you would scan the mempool, you see the exploit, you try to front run it with the pause and hope nothing happens. Um, in my opinion, those services were always sort of doomed to, you know, real, like not great uh, success just because, you know, by nature front running is so, so unpredictable. And for something so high risk, you know, you don't like it, it's a, it's a, it's a once you're done situation, right? Like you, you don't want 50% odds on that. Um, obviously it's kind of like, it, it's still not great that now attackers can sort of like shield their transactions from the public eye until it's, you know, now, now that there's no chance of reacting to it. Mm -hmm. I think the, the two upsides though, is that one attackers aren't really doing that yet. That might change in the future, maybe not. Like maybe it's just too much effort. And the the other upside, the even bigger one, is you know this access is uh, you know it's it's open to everyone, right? Like it's not just black hats that have access to flash bots, it's white hats too. And I think mm -hmm. the the value we're seeing from uh, white hats having access to this is much greater than the downsides from black hats having access to it. Like mm -hmm. you know. Just the Flashbots team alone, they've used their own service to rescue, you know, hundreds of users uh, in their Discord server. Um, you'll see people coming all the time and be like, I 
like I typed in my seed phrase somewhere I shouldn't have. Uh, you know, like this is my life savings. It, it's you know, it's like it's like ten twenty thousand dollars. It it's not. It sounds small for like someone who's been in the space for a long time, but like they're like that's my life savings. I I would be screwed, right? And so mm. the Flashbot team jumps in. They they save their funds. Um, you you know, DYDX they use Flashbots during their own rescue of their that of that uh contract. Mm. Um, I, yeah, like I think the the upsides of that greatly outweigh the downsides. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, you mentioned services that were looking for transactions, like exploit transactions, and then front running them. There's been a bit of a wave recently, I guess, of what the next iteration of that might be. Um, I'm sure there's other ways of doing it, but the particular vector that I've seen is looking for um, fresh funding out of Tornado and for contracts that are being deployed with certain addresses in them. So like if you see your platform's address in there and it's getting funded from a Tornado address, then it knows to like kind of drop the shields. Um, how, how do you feel about that as a line of defense? I think it's really clever. Um, obviously, as it starts getting more and more popular, you know, the, the exploit, uh, the Black Hats will have to, they'll have to, they'll have to start adapting to it, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's a cat and mouse game, like you said. Uh, it's the same thing we see in traditional security. And, you know, they're, I mean, it, it's, it's a good first step. And I, I think specifically the idea of uh, detecting contract deploys and tornado funded addresses is really smart. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Uh, before we um, before we were talking a little bit about what happens like when you find a vulnerability um, and also just how you look through contracts, um, when it comes to trying to find a potential solution for an exploited contract, do you have a methodology there or is it kind of an extension of the same thing? I mean, I'm, if I would have to guess based off of what you've said before, you'd probably say something like see where the value is, where it's not supposed to be and think of ways that that could be diverted. But I'm not well, sure. I mean, <laughs> it, it's similar in a sense, but not exactly the same. So once you know you have an issue in the contract, the question is how do you stop that from being an issue, right? Uh, mm -hmm. If there is a pause button, great, we're done, right? Hit the pause button, get out of here. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes there isn't, and I think that's the interesting case. Uh, in that case, the the approach I use is basically you look at the, so so when you're finding a bug, you have the the destination and you sort of like built up this tree of ways to like get to the destination, right? Uh, once you found the bug, you've like selected this one path out of all these possible paths that lead you from like the entry point to the 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 transfer. Um, now your job is to break that path somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. And this is where it gets like pretty fun because you you basically you look through that entire sequence of steps and you go like, what can I do to the contract, maybe with admin powers, because now you're coordinating with the team, such that this some one of these steps will always fail. And so maybe that's like, you bump up a fee to 100% and that turns out to like break that function call. Or maybe you swap out some, some address for another address, right? Like you can imagine uh, if in this path, uh, in this in the sequence of steps, one of the steps is like call an oracle to like get the price of the asset, and you swap the oracle out to like uh, to the zero address. That call is going to mm -hmm. fail, right? Which means mm -hmm. that entire sequence of steps is going to fail. And so, mm -hmm. it, it the the game is now like how do I how do I break this 
may be using some unintentional method to make this exploit, you know, uh, non-functional. Mm -hmm. Interesting. At, at this point in time, you've had experience rescuing funds from a number of platforms, dealing with a number of very high profile hacks. Um, I don't know if you keep a scorecard on yourself, like on funds saved or anything like that, but the number's got to be pretty high by now. Um, is there a fatigue that comes with that? And if there is, how is that something that, that you work with or something that you deal with? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, no matter how much you, you love security and uh, code review, and, you know, I can assure you, I, I have a huge advocate of both. Um, I think there are times where, you, yeah, you definitely do get a bit burned out. Um, as for how to deal with it, I mean, you know, step away for a bit, for, for a bit. Uh, do something else. Maybe, you know, you know, if you, if you want to be like super, super productive, like learn a new skill, if you don't just like relax, watch YouTube, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. it's definitely not healthy to, you know, continually force yourself into doing something that, you know, it is not bringing you that, that, uh, that happiness anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think this, this is especially true for, uh, for, for a lot of bug hunters who are getting started. Right. Um, it's, it's discouraging. It's demotivating to be spending all that time and not to see any results. And so, you know, I, I think it, you know, it, it's important that we acknowledge that that burnout is a real thing, that it happens to everyone, even the best of us. And that, you know, when, if it happens, like you, there's no need to just sort of like try to like power through it. You just gotta, you just gotta take a break sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's you'd say, I guess that you don't feel a need to like, definitely don't feel like you have to be on call 24 seven to save the universe either. Like it is, it is okay to like take a break, you know, step away, come back later. Yeah. And I think the, you know, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say that I, I was ever like the, like a, a, a load balancing pillar of the community in, in any way, shape or form, but I think definitely the community has gotten really good at, you know, handling this sort of stuff. Um, you know, if you look at war rooms, you, you go, yeah, I, I again, immediately find runs, out runs there are like rooms. entire memes about you being a low balance for the community, <laughs> but okay. I, I, right, right. Um, I guess, I guess, sorry, what I was going for was more like, uh, you know, especially on the top of topic of like being on call 24 seven. Um, I'm, I'm glad that at least I, you know, it's, it's not like, without Sam, everything would be completely screwed. I think the community is doing a great job at sort of like managing that uh, themselves. Um, especially like, I think the, the urine team uh, deserves a shout out here for all the times they, they sort of like stepped in to help, you know, various projects remediate issues, mm -hmm. uh, run a war room, figure out comms, figure out uh, how, to, how to white hat a, a, a contract. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I, I've seen you refer to yourself as not being a Solidity developer. Um, at the same time, you wrote an entire CTF contract or maybe multiple. I, the most recent, the pinball one is the one that comes to mind. Uh, you've also analyzed the Geth code base. Uh, would you say that 
you find analysis skills in general to be language agnostic? Or do you find that kind of each language really is its own its own thing? No, I think that, that skill is very much transferable across languages. Um, at the core of it, well, actually, I guess, okay. Um, I don't have any experience with functional programming languages, so maybe, I don't know how well it transfers there, but, you know, across Java, Go, Solidity, C++, C Sharp, um, I think it's very much, it's very transferable. Uh, mm -hmm. You take, you take what you know, which is, you know, 90% this sort of like logical reasoning, uh, uh, adversarial thinking mindset, and the 10% that is, you know, language specific, you discard and you move on to the next language. I think coming into Solidity, I spent maybe like a week or two learning the language. Um, and then, you know, maybe I, I guess this sort of like counters my point, but then I spent like a month or two, like learning all the ways you can shoot yourself in the foot in the language. But, you know, I, I think a lot of the core skills, like, you know, a, a lot of these bugs nowadays aren't some solidity fuck gun. They've done a very, the, the, the solidity team has done a really good job of preventing those. It's just logic errors, right? And that's totally transferable. You can, you could find the same logic errors in any program of any language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, how do you see the relationship? Maybe also digging into the, like that idea of like being a solidity programmer, not being a solidity developer. How do you see the relationship between being an analyst and being a developer? I guess what differentiates one from the other? Um, analysts like, like a security researcher. Oh yeah. You mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think there's like different, different concerns, right? Um, as a security researcher, my, my number one focus is like, how do I break your app? Um, as a developer, my number one concern is like, how do I write something people want to use? And like, how do I make it, you know, like, I, I, I think you know, the, we have like very different things we're thinking about. And so, uh, as a result, it, it's not, un, it's not an unreasonable to, to expect us to sort of like produce different, uh, you know, results when looking at things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, would you say that research is an important part of your regimen? And I guess if it is, what, what does research look like? I mean, are you reading a lot of blog posts or a lot of posts about what's being developed in the space or like, I, what do you find, I guess, maybe I'll just leave it open-ended. Like uh, what kind of research do you find, find important to what you do? I think the most interesting things for me <clears throat> is when I read about other people's uh, advancements in security. And so whether that's they've developed a new tool, uh, they've released a new product, they found a new bug that, you know, has some sort of novel approach to it. Uh, you know, obviously it, it, it stings a bit when, when I miss something, but at the same time, it's really a great learning experience to sort of like, you know, you, you, on, on multiple layers, right? Like you learn about the bug itself, so like you, you, you know about that new attack vector, but then also you can, you can go back and like self-diagnose, like what exactly went wrong in the process for me to have missed this and like, what can I do better? And, and so it's, it's just so valuable to, to do research. Um, yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's a huge part of my resume. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. Maybe to move subjects a bit, um, there's been a big proliferation of pseudonymous accounts, I would say, particularly in like the whole crypto Twitter sphere and all of that. Um, I would say you managed to front run the phenomenon quite a bit with your own account. Um, can you comment on the value in having a, like being able to go by a pseudonym and like using that as kind of your primary account and touch point? I mean, for me, the value is just, I am a very private person by default. And so, you know, this was just sort of a natural extension of that was, uh, even before getting into crypto, you know, my, my online presence was very much diminished. And so, uh, you know, obviously I didn't feel need to, you know, increase my exposure after getting to crypto. If anything, I think I might've, you know, shrunk it down even more. Um, there's the other benefits that many people have talked about. For example, you don't, you, you sort of like build the reputation around the persona. You don't carry over any like latent reputation from whatever you were doing in the past. And so uh, if some pseudonymous person has, you know, like, uh, like a, has a following or has a backing, you know that they've, they've like really earned that, right? There's no, mm -hmm. uh, there was no, you know, like born, being born with it sort of situation. I, I guess I've wondered also when you get a, like a pseudonymous account that does build up a reputation, if they end up kind of locking themselves into a similar, actually, I guess it depends on the value. I, maybe I'll back up a step. I'll explain what I meant to ask a little bit better, um, which is that I do feel like I hear people talking about how pseudonymous accounts allow them to kind of free themselves up a bit. They don't feel as restricted about expressing themselves as they may have been without that. Um, which is, a, I guess, a different point than the one you were just making. There's a part of me that wonders if in those cases at a certain point in reputation, the process kind of starts over again, though, because they've already built up so much of a reputation in one area that they feel maybe like they have to produce a certain kind of content moving forward on that. I don't know if that's part of your reasoning. I don't know if you've got anything in particular to comment on that, though. Do you, do you feel like that might be a phenomenon? Yeah, uh, my pro tip in this area is don't build your reputation around only publishing things when something's on fire, because then you can't publish anything without making people think things are on fire. Uh, case in point, I basically, <laughs> I basically, uh, every time I tweet, I'm like, okay, like what percentage of my followers are going to like see the alert and go, something's broken, see the tweet, realize it's just like some shit post and then get upset at me for, for, you know, like not <laughs> for, for wasting their time or whatever. Uh, so yeah, the, 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 the lock-in is very real. I think, you know, sometimes it's okay because like, you know, a lot of these pseudonymous, uh, avatars, they, they've locked themselves into like a very casual, like, you know, you, you, you follow them for their shit posts. Right. Mm. Um, whereas I've sort of like done the opposite, like you follow me for like these breaking, like, once in once in a month like critical issues and i'm like well guess guess i'm not tweeting anything else then <laughs> uh, I, I feel like i'm kind of the opposite by the pinball game i remember um it took a bit for the like the actual exploit behind your pinball game ctf to get released and um it was actually my tweet i actually tweeted at you and asked it, like kind of what had happened with it and you mentioned that it was coming soon, but there was like something that was holding it back. An ether scan resp responded with an eyes emoji. 
And I remember at the time looking at it and being like, wow, even Etherscan's following this. That's interesting. And then just like absolutely failing <laughs> to process it. And then of course, I, for, for anyone who's listening, uh, the pinball CTF was based off of a zero day vulnerability in Etherscan itself. So I, <laughs> I, I completely failed to make the connection over there, I suppose, but yeah. Um, there's a lot of different levels of privacy that people like that people can try and have when they make a pseudonymous account. Um, I, I'm kind of drawn. Uh, someone from the Bitcoin community, Jamison Lop, has a very long guide to privacy in general, uh, which has some really innocent title like a reasonable guide to preserving self privacy or something that's like 30 pages <laughs> long, and involves things like moving to a different city and giving everybody a false name. Um, but uh, what, what kind of level, I guess, of detachment between your, like, you know, the Samsung pseudonym and your real life do you strive for? Like, are you aiming for like nation state level security or is it something kind of probably a little bit more low key than that? Yeah, I mean, before I get to that, I just want to say shout out to Etherscan for taking that, taking that uh, CTF challenge so, so, uh, so well. Um, I think it's very gracious of them not to, you know, throw the book at me when I email them out of the blue. It's like, and I'm like, hey, great to meet you. First time, first time saying hi. Uh, I found a bug in your platform, and the first thing I did was exploit it publicly. Hope you don't mind. Um, <laughs> so I'm glad. I'm glad they didn't like perma ban me from their website forever because that that would have been really bad. Um, but also, I, I'm I'm familiar with the article you're you're referring to. It's in my opinion, it, it, it does go a little intense um, at times. I don't know if I'd have personally the, the energy to you know, follow through with all of that. Um, I think one of the benefits of you know, being like, uh, like a lawful good pseudonymous character is that I can s sort of exclude nation state level adversaries or like, you know, like people trying to get at me um, mm -hmm. for my threat model, uh, my, basically what I, what I want to protect against is like sort of casually <clears throat> leaking any sort of information onto the internet. Um, I'm sure if someone like searches for me really hard or like if someone, you know, like if any, if any hacker, you know, social engineers, some support agent at whatever like companies products I use and like gets in the database, they'll find out everything they need to, they need to know about me pretty quickly. Uh, the goal is just to like not have that happen. And then also like make it so a casual search of me doesn't show up anything, you know, too, too personal. Uh, my boundary is basically, uh, I don't talk about my personal life ever. Most, well, so, so my rule of thumb is like, I don't talk about things that I don't need to talk about. And it just turns out like, I don't really find a need to talk about anything that happens in my personal life. And so I just don't. So if I'm not mistaken, you worked independently for a while. Um, then you had a period by Trail of Bits and are now at Paradigm. Um, what would you say were the advantages of, or disadvantages of being solo? And what is it that drew you to Paradigm to, to work there? Um, well, being solo is obviously, you know, you have a lot of flexibility, a lot of freedom to do what you want. Uh, the downside, of course, is that 
you know, you're now also managing all of the, the administrative related things by yourself. And then also it's actually being a solo auditor is like really high pressure. Um, you know, it, you're, you're working by yourself. There's no one you can sort of like turn to for a second, for a second opinion. I really, really, one thing I really loved, uh, at Trilovis was just being able to like turn to someone and be like, Hey, uh, I think like, I think this part's fine, but if you have time, can you, can you check it out for me? Uh, just get like a second opinion on it. Um, being solo, you don't, you don't have that. You also, you know, timelines are tight, uh, for large projects, uh, being at a firm, they can spread it on, they can spread it out among like six, seven engineers that they need to being solo. You can't really, you know, you can't really be like, all right, this auto will take two months come back in two months. Um, so there's a lot of restrictions. It, it, it's like, you know, you, you, you do the pros and cons and you decide if it's right for you. Uh, for me, I, I did a few solo audits and I was like, this is not really, like, I, I think I'd rather try uh, working at a firm. Um, Trail Bits is great. You know, no, no, uh, no slander to the middle. Um, it's not like I left because we, we had a falling out or whatever. Um, in the end, the reason I joined Paradigm was basically just because uh, there were, you know, so many talented people doing uh, things that weren't security. And you know, as much as I love security, uh, I thought it'd be valuable for me to sort of like have exposure in these other fields as well. And generally, you know, at a higher level, just like get like get experience in a completely different field, right? Like I. Never would have guessed uh, three years ago that I'd be working at a fund, and you know here I am, and you know it's it's, it's been really fun. Mm -hmm. um, on that note, if you are able to say, uh, what does your work in Paradigm consist of? Yeah, um, so my work is basically a mix of uh, helping uh, review code for our portfolio companies. And so, you know, if they're doing some big release, like for example, with Uniswap V3 uh, or with Open Squeeze, um, you know, help review, helping review those. Of course, as a single person, it's it's hard to sort of reach the coverage that uh, an, an audit firm can reach. And so uh, I try not to publicize that those results too much like i don't i don't go around like tweeting like i just like sam just finished an audit of you know soft v3 no issues found please ape in right like that's not that's not a thing um uh some other time is spent just like various like internal security related things um and i don't know if i can go into too much detail about that but just like what you'd expect from like security engineer working at some company and then the remaining time is just spent towards you know, various community related services, right? So like finding bugs, helping respond to incidents, uh, writing blog posts. I should probably write another blog post soon. Uh, I have still waiting for a bug to get fixed in in Geth before I can write a blog post on that. Although it's been quite a while, so I might, I might have to go and refresh myself on that one, but yeah. Um. Maybe as a, a last series of questions, actually, about about your writing in general, uh, something I think that I guess surprised me early in as I began to get acquainted with your work is um, 
you're a really good writer, if I can say so. Uh, blog posts are like long, very informative, still very like engaging. Um, how do you see writing as a part of your work in general? I mean, first of all, thank you. Uh, take that high school English teacher who always thought my writing was awful. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think I think writing is a huge part. I mean, even in traditional security, uh, you know, blog posts, write ups, they're a great way to communicate information about uh, some some specific topic, um, both to a technical audience to like communicate what the bug was, how you, you know, how you should consider the, these sort of issues in the future. Um, but also to, you know, a general audience, you know, like what exactly, like, you know, when, when Heartbleed, Heartbleed came out and when the, when that Log4j bug came out, you know, it's about, you know, the bugs for a technical audience, but also, you know, you had to make it accessible to you know, everyday people who didn't understand what OpenSSL was, right? Like they, they've never heard of that in their lives. And now there's like all these articles going around uh, talking about the scary, like it's, it's like a heart, but it's got blood coming out of it. Like, what does this mean? And so, you know, the writing was really key to, to communicating that, that concept across. Interesting. Um, do you, is writing, I'd say a part of like your work, do you find yourself like sitting down just to write things out to yourself to, uh, to explain them to yourself or is it just kind of a separate activity from the actual like like i guess work processes themselves um it's definitely not a constant part of my work i mainly write when there's something very interesting to talk about and that's why i, d I don't do write-ups for every bug i find uh only for things that i think are you know, like unique and, and novel and not discussed prior. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, definitely, definitely not like I sit down every day and just like pump out a post or two. It's like mm -hmm. a, like a maybe monthly sort of occurrence. All right. Interesting. Um, I was wondering if there's anything that you might want to end off with, like anything that uh, you might want to say a particular call to action or anything like that. Um, don't mean to put you on the spot with that though <laughs> yeah uh i mean i don't know it's uh i'm trying not trying not to be super super corny about this um yeah no i don't i don't think i have any i have anything that that's that's definitely fine too but in that case sam thanks for coming on the podcast it's been a pleasure to have you awesome yeah it's great chatting with you